Hello, and welcome to In Theory. I'm Naran Khan. And I'm Maria Sachigosa-Siri. In Theory is the podcast where we talk about the theories that help us make sense of the world. This week, we're talking about childhood, how we understand childhood today, where these understandings have come from, and how they influence our perceptions of ourselves and our behaviors towards others. We'll be talking about how we've come to think about childhood as the origins of our identities, the ideal of the romantic child, which still dominates how we think about kids today, and the idea of racial innocence. This is a concept thought through by scholar Robin Bernstein in her book by the same name. Maybe we can kick it off with um, sharing some thoughts on hanging out with kids. I don't have any kids of my own, but when I do get to spend some time with kids of friends or you know family, um, I'm definitely struck by the fact that kids today, I love saying kids today, <laughs> kids today are so highly documented, right? Like every single minute from, from birth onwards is captured by phone. And I guess... The thing that strikes me so personally is that we've all been told, or at least it's my understanding, that so many um, experiences that I had when I was a kid are either emblematic of or representative of some of the you know traits that I like grew up to have, or I had experiences that shaped who I am mm-hmm. that you know like manifest today. And I just think it's like so crazy to be able to capture all of that, revisit it later, and be like, you were always this way. Um, and I don't have access to that. And I have to say, I'm a little bit jealous. Maria, I'm not sure if you feel the same way or not. <laughs> so you're, wait, let me get this right. You're jealous of kids who have had their lives documented intricately from before they were born with the kind of 3D in utero imaging through the first time they took a pay to the first time they got stuck behind something and their family took a picture of it and posted it on, on Instagram. You're jealous of that? Oh, like a hundred percent. Oh my God. <laughs> totally. Why not? What if I was so cute and I have like five pictures of myself? Oh my God. See, I am so grateful that that wasn't around when I was a kid. I feel like there's a measure of, of privacy and a sense of, of self-determination about being able to kind of author my own life that comes with not having had someone else authoring my life since before I could even be counted legally as a human being. I get it. I actually, I totally get what you're saying. I guess I would just see it as like another input. So like the inputs we have now are like the stories our parents or friends tell us, the photographs or like these like little piecemeal things that we cobble together to build our narrative of self, mm-hmm. like as a child. And I guess the this input would just be like a way more steady stream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that you wish you had all of this data about yourself when you were a kid because it would help you to make more sense of who you are as an adult. Is that right? Oh, definitely, right? I think we have Freud to thank for at least the mainstreaming of the idea that formative experiences of kids help shape grown-up things and that as an adult looking back, you can help, you know, understand yourself better by looking for those answers earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something we all kind of accept, generally accept today. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's like, in some ways, we all kind of take for granted Freud's ideas of psychoanalysis, where you talk through and work through thinking about your childhood and your earliest memories um, as a way to understand who you are as an adult. And without even necessarily having to go to a therapist, we do this all the time in popular culture and in daily life where we're like, oh, well, you know, he was like this as a kid or, oh my gosh, that must be because her parents did this to her when she was a little girl. I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting is how nowadays you basically can't have a villain in a movie without a little cutaway to their history and talking about what happened to them as a kid that made them so evil you know, to kind of explain where the badness comes from, as if we can locate all of that in, in some childhood trauma always. And actually in The Dark Knight, um, what made the Joker so scary to me was that you get that kind of obligatory cutaway where you, he is explaining why he became the way he was, but then over the course of the film, he does it two more times with totally different stories, and you oh, realize wow. that he's just making it up. And so you go from a place of empathy to, oh, this is how, you know, thinking this is how this person's become this way, to total bewilderment and confusion, and maybe things aren't located in childhood, and maybe this person is just evil. Oh my gosh, that's totally crazy and eerie. I know. I know. It was really good. Really well mm. done. Keith Ledger, so good. <laughs> it's like funny to think, though, that this idea that all of these things that we demonstrated when we were kids, like, made us who we are today is, like, not necessarily how society always thought about children or, like, the experiences of being a child. Yeah, exactly. I guess there's a theory that everyone's kind of accepted without realizing it's a theory that childhood experiences dramatically inform and, in fact, can define who you are as an adult. Thank you, Freud. Oh, darling, don't you ever go, don't you ever go, to stay this little Oh, darling, don't you ever go, don't you ever go, you can stay this simple And no one's ever burned you, nothing's ever So let's talk about the idea of the romantic child, which is one of the primary ways that we still understand children today. Um, and when we say the romantic child, um, we're... I, taking the term from the Romantics, so people like Wordsworth, Coleridge, people at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century who really helped to shape the idea of children as innocent, connected to nature, having some aspects of magic and spirituality associated with them, um, and this idea as having become really popularized and cemented in the 19th century um, during the Victorian period, and which really continues to uh, dominate how we think about kids today. I think that's totally right. I think the concept of innocence is just like pervasive, like don't corrupt children. We mm. have constant societal debates about like what children should have access to because of their innocence. Um, and that like you just enduring narrative, like what kids should be reading, reading or um, like movie ratings or, you know, what's taught in schools. It just seems to permeate how we talk about kids. Um, yeah. And it's interesting to think that like kids may not have always been perceived as being innocent also. Yeah. And I mean, and it raises this question of what's the difference between innocence and ignorance. And, you know, we don't like to talk about kids as ignorant. We like to talk about kids as innocent. Although both of them involve a certain kind of not knowing. Um, but one is a sort of precious not knowing that we have to preserve. And the other is a kind of unfortunate not knowing that we have to get over. Oh, totally fair. That's, that's like kind of blows my mind. Um, and it, 
it kind of reminds me a little bit of like when you're reading about like Calvinists and like fire and brimstone rhetoric, like those kids were like sinners and they hadn't yet been saved. Mm -hmm. And like before that, like parent, I mean, from what I understand, like parents like were really worried about their kids dying before Mm -hmm. actually having salvation because, because of original sin. It's just not how we think about kids today at all. Another point that you mentioned with respect to the romantic child is the connection to nature. Mm-hmm. And I never really spent much time talking about it, but, you know, like, like you know, I guess recess and going to camp and being outdoors is supposedly an important part, or at least it's been constructed as, like, an important part of, like, kids, I don't know, kids being able to grow, kids being able to flourish, yeah. or some sort of connection they have. Yeah. And it's, all of this is part of a much larger shift that happens moving from thinking about children as kind of sinners that need to be civilized into becoming good members of society and moral to seeing them as kind of born already precious and already kind of touched by God and therefore kind of needing, instead of strict instruction, space to ramble and experience and be free and play and to continue to develop these innate good qualities inside of them Um, and and the outdoors as being part of that um, kind of experience. So this is something that really gets transformed in the late 18th century and into the 19th century. Um, And now, you know, it's we think about the importance of having green space and parks and all of these kinds mm-hmm. of access to natural, the natural world for kids. Um, and if we don't, we feel like we're depriving them of a childhood as if childhood necessarily was kind of embedded in, in natural spaces. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think parks are cool. <laughs> well, when you talk about parks, um, that makes me think of the uh, kind of another element of like childhood, which is just like imagining things and imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and the importance of like, I don't know, like whatever mystical thing that kids have that permits them to like construct a world and live in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so kids are kind of magical maybe. And we accept that, right? I guess what's really interesting is, you know, I, I don't, I wonder why we think that children have more imagination than adults. Oh, that's sad, actually. <laughs> I never do, thought about like, do, that. Yeah. Do they? I mean, it's just making me think that adults have a lot more imagination that, like, they can't act upon. And, like, the, like, brutality of life kind of beats it out of them. Or or societal expectations don't permit you to act on well, and, that, and that's, I mean, that's about. definitely, like, the discourse of, like, you know, Peter Pan or something like that. When, you, when, when John and Michael and the Lost Boys grow up, they all become these kind of imaginationless, boring guys. Yeah. But yeah. only Peter Pan, who stays a child forever, continues to have adventures. And, you know, but, and, and that's something we also just accept. And we, we talk about trying to tap our inner child and yeah. go back to childhood childhood and find our imagination and that kind of stuff and I mean I don't know I was raised by like a really fun kind of like he's a mature guy but childlike in his sense of play my father <laughs> and so I I have become an adult and I would I would hazard that my siblings also have become adults who continue to play yeah a lot and we know there are social circumstances in which we cannot do that and so we we don't yeah <laughs> you sure. know at work or something like that right but you know still like a, a lot of imaginative play that's I feel not really less a part of my adult life than it was when I was a child it's just kind of delineated more by what I'm allowed to do you know based on what I got to do for work and that kind of thing sure but 
I don't know. I, I, but the idea, like our investment in children being imaginative and magical, I wonder how much of that is the fact that they just, you know, they really do have more time to be indulging in these kinds of thinking, um, or if we're training them to be that way. Sure. Um, or if we are just kind of constraining ourselves from being that way and saying, well, I'm not like that because I'm not a child anymore. And that's what children do. I think, I think we're constraining ourselves and I think we're calibrating, you know, just like part of becoming an adult is shedding that in terms of like the liminal point of like transitioning to being an adult. That makes me sad though. I think I need to play more. I don't think that's true of you. I think you're a very playful person. We have lots of fun when I hang out with you. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why we're friends. Um, Awesome. So yeah, so I guess the idea of, of the romantic child as innocent and magical and, you know, all of these things, it sounds really nice. And, and I, you know, it was actually really important, this this widespread movement in, in helping to introduce legislation against child labor in the 19th century, you know, as we moved from seeing children as um, part of our farm economic life. income <laughs> of, yeah, farm life or like the income um, for the family as workers. Yeah. Um, and we and we move from seeing them uh, like that to seeing them as, as precious or priceless. And there's actually a book um, by a woman called Viviana Zelizer. It's called Pricing the Priceless Child, which is really kind of showing how this valuation of children shifts from seeing them as, um, you know, contributions to family economy to productively useless, but emotionally priceless so um you know and, and i think that that definitely happens and i don't know that there, there's anything necessarily wrong with that i think it's it's lovely um but at the same time you know other people argue that by we put a lot of burden on children by kind of demanding that they behave in a certain way yeah. and that they hold all of these symbols for us of innocence of magic of nature um and we kind of like force them to carry that around with them so that we can do all the other stuff in life that um, we need to get done and we can still feel like that exists in the world. It just now exists on their little bodies. And we punish them if they don't behave in that way. Yeah, exactly. They have no idea what's going on. I mean, they don't, yeah, like we don't even know the forces at play. How how would they ever be able to perceive that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's been really interesting growing up, especially, is having friends who've got young kids talking about having to deal with the fact that kids will, you know, touch their genitals at the table or whatever it is. And, you know, that because it feels good and so yeah. having to teach them not to do that, but also the kind of outrage that people have at, at imagining that kids have sexuality when, right. you know, sure they do, but it's so extremely important to our idea of the romantic child that children be innocent and in this innocent, case, ignorant yeah. of a certain thing of sexuality sure. uh, that it, you know, they get harshly punished for, showing any signs of this Mm, poor kids i know poor kids but it's it's hard to be a person probably not the dinner table yeah (laughs) let's talk about uh racial innocence and kind of our the normative view of like what what is a child a white middle mm-hmm. class maybe heteronormative child um yeah. and what it might mean to not align with those expectations totally i mean you know all of these things we're talking about before with this cute child who plays in the nature um typically is figured as white and with the kind of 
economic income to make it possible for that child to have all of these toys and yeah. access to space and um, time to play and all of those kinds of things. And in fact, we would say that a child soldier hasn't had a childhood. Sure. It doesn't make any sense because, you know, that person By was definition. a child. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but a childhood is defined as having access to these kinds of experiences. Sure. And in some ways being a certain kind of person. Right. And I guess that dictates expectations and depictions of kids. So like in storybooks or um, I guess anywhere you see a kid represented, uh, if it's not a white middle class heteronormative kid, um, it means something. Like it, 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 the deviation itself means something maybe. Yeah, definitely. In my children's class, we were looking at the Snowy Day, which is this iconic, beautiful um, picture book, which depicts um, an African-American child going outside to play on a snowy day in the city. Um, and it was really notable because it was one of the first picture books um, that was really depicting an African-American child. And not only is it having a black kid, it has this kid in urban space, which is you know, also really unusual for children's picture books. Um, but when I was looking at it with the class, one of the things that we noticed was that even though it was a black kid, the, the kid's snowsuit ends up kind of obscuring most of his body and makes him this like adorable red blob that's kind of running around in the landscape. And the landscape itself is is obscured by the snow. So everything becomes a soft, rounded, natural, <laughs> colorful shapes, even though it's in this urban environment. And so it manages to take a black kid in an urban space and somehow turn it into this kind of cute, amorphous blob child in a uh, natural space. And, you know, it, it, it's a really important book and beautifully made. Um, but it mm -hmm. does have this kind of interesting feature of almost like proving this black kid's childness sure. by bringing in all of these previous expectations we have about children and kind of mapping them onto this kid. I mean, that, that comports with so much of how we as a society get comfortable with something else. Like by taking the different thing and normalizing it or beating, like beating the difference out of it to a point where it's like palatable. Mm -hmm. Well, it was like the whole, not to keep talking about Hunger Games, but like the whole <laughs> outrage. <laughs> I don't think you can talk too much about Hunger Games with I agree. with us. Yeah, for sure. 110%. Yep. Um, but, you know, all the outrage when um, in the first Hunger Games film, the character Rue, who's a small black girl, turns out to be black. <laughs> um, people were shocked horrified um, to that that the filmmakers would, for the sake of political correctness, make this character black. When in fact, in the book, she's black. Um, but there's somehow the idea that this sweet, innocent little girl who reminds the white protagonist of her little sister, the idea that this could be a black girl was just totally overwhelming and raging to people. It's, and so, really it's so crazy. It's like unbelievable. Like the tweets like to read, like the tweets are insane. They're so crazy. <laughs> I really? don't, I mean... Like, I'm laughing now because of, it's like, you couldn't even write a parody for this. It's so funny. Yeah. Stupid. I know. But it works really well with, with this idea that Robin Bernstein puts forward in her book, Racial Innocence, right? Which is that we, we presume innocence to be white. We presume innocent childhood to look white. And when it isn't white, we kind of panic, basically. And this is an example of it still happening today, which is really quite depressing. You know, you'd think that there would be some change. This is linked to something else that people have pointed out for years, which is that um, 
kids of color uh, don't get this presumption of innocence that that white mm-hmm. kids do. Kids of color are disproportionately disciplined in school, mm-hmm. um, starting from the earliest ages, you know, starting from preschoolers who somehow experienced a disproportionate amount of discipline for the same kind of behavior as, as white kids, all the way up through um, older ages when um, basically black teens are tried as adults and white teens are seen exactly as as teens and expectations about their behavior um, are adjusted accordingly. Absolutely. That's, I mean, it's, it's so interesting to me and also really, really disheartening to me. You know, there's this study from 2014 um, on discipline in the nation's schools, which show that black children make up only 18% of preschoolers, but they make up nearly half of all out of school suspensions. Preschoolers. I mean, these are like four year olds. What on earth are you doing? suspending a preschooler like that (laughs) that itself is like unbelievably shocking but those those statistics have to mean something and I mean especially if we are gonna go with this Freudian theory of of early experiences defining who you become later in life right you know the the idea that you start getting suspended and getting in trouble from when you're four years old um in at rates that disproportionately suggests that your ethnic group is going to be the one that gets in trouble for it. I mean, that's going to change the way that you think about yourself and your abilities and the justice system to which you belong. It's really has wide reaching implications. And along the same lines of what happened with the preschoolers is that, you know, across all age groups, black students are three times more likely than white students to be suspended. So this continues throughout the kind of educational process. And as you were saying before, um, going up, into um, adulthood where young black people are much more likely to be tried as adults than young people of other racial backgrounds. So I guess, Maria, I guess I'm asking like equipped with this information, which I never thought like very deeply about before. Like I'm always trying to figure out like, what am I supposed to do differently? Um, Mm -hmm. Especially being like a woman of color who may one day have children who are like, know non-white yeah well I mean I think just knowing is part of it there's this great this American life piece about the woman who's a black woman whose sons were getting suspended from school and she assumed that they were being bad and then gradually came to realize that they were being more harshly punished than kids that were white for the same kinds of behavior and so knowing that this is a tendency and that we do continue to assume innocence more strongly in white children than we do in children of color um, will be helpful in kind of keeping an eye on the way that we treat kids the way that other people treat our kids um, that kind of stuff I think just just keeping it in mind I I just want people who are dealing with this issue at scale, like policymakers and other folks to like be thinking about this because, you know, I can do that in my own life and like try to understand the people around me. Um, But, but when you create, you know, policies and education or other types of, you know, like when you're talking about incarceration or, you know, whatever else with, with young people, like you have to have this in mind. And sometimes I just feel like this kind of information doesn't get to the right folks or it's too abstract for the, for the people that actually have influence over, you know, decision-making, like, real yeah. real power. Well, that's one of the things I find so frustrating, right, is that if something isn't super obvious and cut and dry, then it doesn't 
always seem to make its way into policy. Yeah. You know, the idea that children are sweet and innocent and magical, you know, that, that can be really <laughs> lovely and do some really important things for uh, allowing children to have better access to education. Yeah, I'm thinking like arts education. Play. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But if it, if it's selectively done, if the way that we see children as sweet and innocent and magical excludes whole groups of children yeah. just based on their race or background, then it becomes a really big equity problem. Definitely. Well, so at the very least, like I know a little bit more about this and hopefully our listeners do too. So today we talked about childhood. We think childhood today is this like simple experience of innocence. You know, you have a romantic child, you have a child who has experiences that are formative to who they grow up to be. But I think we were, you know, able to figure out that our notions as a society of what a what childhood means have evolved over time, um, as have our expectations of what children are capable of, um, what experiences they need to grow up. Um, they've evolved too. And... As a part of that, we've been able to see how inequality in some ways can stem from even the best meaning ways of thinking about children if we're not making sure that our understanding of children is broad enough to include all children, irrespective of background. Questions, comments, ideas, we'd love to hear from you at intheorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find past podcasts and more info about us at intheory.us or on our Facebook page. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and recommend us to any and all of your friends. If you feel so moved, please rate us and review us on iTunes. We'd very much appreciate it. In Theory is produced with the support of Experimental Humanities and Human Rights Radio at Bard College. Music composition and art design by the amazing Aaron Taylor Waldman. Thanks so much for listening.